You're listening to Drek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to the second episode of Literary Treks. I'm Christopher Jones and uh, Matthew Rushing is with me today. Hello, Matthew. Hey there, Chris. How's it going? It's going well. So we got our first show under our belt and I was actually a little bit surprised at the huge reception we've received for Literary Treks, Matthew. I was really surprised as well. I'm I'm glad that uh, people have responded to it and, and have enjoyed um, listening to it. I think uh, there's a lot of closet Trek book readers out there, and so they enjoy having a place where they can actually talk about it, and that's okay. Apparently so. Um, I don't know if I would call them closet readers, but there are <laughs> maybe more people who are reading the novels than I even I realized, you know, and I read the novels just like you do. Uh, I, I wasn't expecting so many people to come out and say, we're so glad that there is now a podcast devoted just to Star Trek books. So that's just really been wonderful. Yeah. I think one of the things is that, um, it's the only place to find the prime universe now. And so, uh, because of that, people really respond to that. And if you're not playing, uh, Star Trek online, um, this is the place you're going to go for the Star Trek that you're really familiar with. Um, and of course, you know, we don't get a ton of JJ universe things, just the comics. And so uh, really, if you want Star Trek, it's either this or Netflix. Exactly. That's right. And and if you want continuation of the stories that we got in the Next Generation era, then yeah, this is the place to go. There's Star Trek Online, of course, which is taking place in the 25th century, but they're kind yes. of on their own little little path I guess that's maybe a little bit, I think it ties in some to the expanded universe of the novels, but it's, yeah, it, they're not in sync with each other all the time, as far as I can tell. Yeah, it, it does a little bit. They they took um, the the countdown comic and kind of jumped off from there. And so, yeah. um, you know, a lot of, I, I know for myself, I, some of the things that they did with the Prime universe, I was like, this is ridiculous. Picard would never have given up the Enterprise. And why is data normal? So, anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we... We have a big show this week. We have coming up, after we do a brief news segment, we have Kirsten Bayer with us this week for a discussion of the continuation of Voyager in the novels. And so I'm really looking forward to that. But before we get to that, why don't we uh, give people the lowdown on a little bit of book and comic news? Yeah, we had some great news this week. Um, I had a tweet from James Swallow talking about his new um, Star Trek book, Star Trek The Next Generation, celebrating 25 years of The Next Generation. And it's going to be called The Stuff of Dreams. It's going to be an ebook. Uh, it's going to come out in March. Uh, but I was really interested to see in this tweet that he said that it's going to be a Picard story that ties into generations. So I'm not really sure what that means. 
Hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's going to be all about Picard, who decided to stay in the Nexus and have Christmas dinner with his family. Well, that Christmas dinner really did look good. Um, either that, or I was wondering <laughs> if it's Picard traveling to our universe to talk to Ronald D. Moore about why did you kill Kirk like that? That could be it. And his companion will be Greg Harbin. Yeah, I, I think Craig <laughs> is definitely going to be a part of this. So, um, And then the second thing is, uh talked to Dayton last week, and he he said he hadn't been able to write anything about his newest book coming out. Um, and so, actually, the next day, um, we talked to him. He put on his blog um, all about his new book and what it's going to be about. Um, so I was really excited to see that. So if you want to read what Dayton had to say about his newest book, From History Shadow, um, check out his blog. It's it's It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. It really does. Uh, just a couple of tidbits, and then you can go read all the details over on Dayton's blog. But it's an original series novel about Kirk's original five-year mission. And uh, it's actually beginning a week or so after the events of Assignment Earth. So if you remember the episode Assignment Earth, and you kind of wondered what, what happened after that uh, to Gary Seven and such, then uh, this book is going to continue that story. Yeah, and he says that the mystery just gets weirder as the book goes along. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be really excited to read this one. I always enjoy when they start to tie um, lots of fun things together in the Star Trek universe. So I think this will be a good one. Yeah, that, that looks great. And that is scheduled to be released, uh, Dayton says, right now on July 30th of 2013. So got to wait, you know, about seven months or so here. Yeah, not too not too bad. The the If anyone has looked at the release schedule for next year, we have a really heavy dose of TOS and the next generation as well. So um, it, it's going to be, I think, a very fun year in, in the Trek books. Now, the next thing we have is this reference. It's sort of a reference book. It's Star Trek Federation, the first 150 years. And uh, we've talked about this on the Ready Room a bit. Uh, we've covered it in Hyper Channel. It looks like a really beautiful book. Now, have you had a chance to kind of look inside this? Um, of course, we don't have our hands on it, but they have uh, shown the inside of it through so several videos. Yeah, you know, I have gotten a chance to to look through it. I've watched the videos. In fact, you know, uh, Tristan had done the Hyper Channel um, with some of this in there, and I was really excited to see this. I really want this book. Um, it's also not an inexpensive book, and so that's true. Um, probably be something I put on the Christmas list there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it has illustrations and pop outs and pull out elements, and uh, it has a wonderful. Um, stand that it gets put in and um, there's some great pictures and art in here so I'm, I'm really excited um, to get into this book because I think it's actually going to be really informative as well it certainly looks like it and you mentioned the stand the stand is really cool and it almost makes it like it's a museum piece it's like you're going to the library in the future I don't know maybe picture it like in the 26th or 27th century. And this is like your history book. And you're looking back at those first 150 years of the Federation. It's a really cool concept. And like you said, definitely 
this feels to me like a Christmas gift for that Star Trek fan in your life. And it's um, going to be released on December 4th. And although the list price is really steep at $100, I looked over at Amazon and they're actually selling it for $53.90. So it's 46% off. Uh, I would highly recommend that. I wish someone would get that for me for Christmas. It would be a perfect <laughs> gift. For all you listeners out there, Chris would like Star Trek Federation, the first 100 And my address years. is... <laughs> 555. <laughs> well, and what was really great about this, there's a, there's a really good interview with the author over at StarTrek.com um, that was really interested, and he gets into some of the... Um, just the ideas for the book and, and the formatting uh, and the formation of the Federation. Um, you know, he worked uh, on Enterprise. And so this is something that's really interesting. Um, and I think that it's, it is going to be uh, just kind of a real joy for Star Trek fans to get into this. Um, you know, we don't really know a ton about the Federation history. Um, right. And I, I think that this is something that uh, fans will really enjoy. So moving on, what else do we have in book news? Well, um, I really was excited to this. Uh, David R. George III um, created uh, recently just two of my favorite books, uh, kind of wrapping up some DS9 story elements. Uh, fantastic books. I loved them. Um, and he is going to be writing um, a series of, of novels. Uh, it's going to be a five-book arc that takes place over a 60-day period. Um and but it's not necessary to read each novel in order, but it's going to have the aspects of the next generation and Deep Space Nine universes together. Um, so I'm really excited. Um, Federation is going to be squaring off against the Typhoon Pact, who they suspect has been behind a barbarous act that shatters the fragile peace that says in the um, the catalog here. And so I'm I'm really excited to read this. Um, yeah, it sounds very interesting. The Typhon Pact really started, well, continued this shakeup of the Federation that has happened in the novels. Um, for for fans who haven't read the novels and you're only familiar with the television shows, you may not be listening to this podcast in that case, but, uh, you know, it's amazing how much things have changed because of, of things like the Typhon Pact and, of course, the Destiny series and such. Yeah, and just rereading the Destiny series right now and being reminded of you know the choices from that book and by the Federation president and what led to then this um, group of Federation enemies pulling their resources and creating their own basically anti-Federation. And so mm -hmm. um, very interesting. And uh, I'm very excited that uh, David will be kicking off that series. Um, I think uh, if I, I felt like I heard from David Mack that he's actually going to be working on this series as well. So yeah, I think it's going to be great. Um, and then the last thing um, that uh, actually Landrew brought to my attention was that... And Landrew, for those who don't know, is our TOS editor. Yes, our TOS editor. Uh, Drew Stewart, who we call Landrew because he is of the body. 
which is really weird because I've never actually seen him except on the computer screen. So I'm not really sure if he is of the body. Um, well, he but, claims he's of the body. So, eh, well, I'll, I'll let it go. But uh, apparently, <laughs> Drew is really excited about the new Star Trek craft book that's going to be coming out in May. Um, <laughs> Drew's really a crafty guy, apparently, um, and so. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. There's uh, 25 different crafts in it. Um, so it'll be something that'll be good for the whole family. Um, if you're into crocheting or embroidery, uh, sewing, decoupage, stenciling, uh, you, there's there's tons of things in here. Um, so this will be something to do with the kids, I think. It has a pretty cute cover, and it reminds me that uh, my wife, who, who likes to knit, she has knitted... Without using a reference book like this, some characters, Starfleet officers that look very, very similar to the ones on the cover of this book. <laughs> oh, excellent. Well, and I know that um, one of Colin's own Delta Angels, Kate, actually uh, creates oh, these yes. as well. And so, um, yeah, there's there's a big market out there for something like this. So uh, yeah. I thought that, that was something really fun. So. <laughs> looks forward. All right, everyone, we'll be sure we get a copy of this for Landrew as a, as a Christmas present. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're going to get him that Amazon gift card so he can make sure that yeah. this is is purchased for him. He's going to I think he might already have it pre-ordered. He might. Now now it's not actually coming out until May 21st of next yes. year though, right? So we won't be able to do it for Christmas, but maybe we could do it for like a special Federation like day a 4th or? of July or a Federation Day or Ooh, Captain Picard Day. Yeah, or Landrew Day. Well, yeah, he does deserve <laughs> his own day. All right. Well, okay, so that's our roundup of book news so far. And we do have a few bits of comic news to talk about as well. And uh, we mentioned on the first show the Countdown to Darkness series. And mm-hmm. we have a little more news on that, I believe, now. Yeah, I was really excited that Star StarTrek.com decided to give us kind of a first look at some of the the work that's coming out on Countdown to Darkness 2. Um, and this one has a very uh, alluring uh, Uhura on it. And so um, not quite sure, uh, but she does seem to be uh, not in a completely dark setting. Uh, so... Right, because they're not in the darkness yet. This is right, countdown exactly. to darkness. This is... Exactly. As Greg and I discussed on the Ready Room if you read all four issues of this, as you flip through, mm. it just gets a little bit darker. And by the time you get to the fourth issue, you can barely see what's on the page. And it's it's almost imperceptible because it happens over such a long period of time. But if you go back to the first issue and then you compare it to the fourth, you can realize that you yourself have actually trekked into darkness. And I think that the fourth issue is probably going to be the easiest comic ever to produce because it's <laughs> it literally just going to be black pages. And so right. they're not really going to have to do a whole lot. That They might just be able to put some luminescent font bubbles, you know, um, right. yeah, yeah. just so we can at least understand what action is happening. Right, because something is actually happening there. You just can't see it because it's in darkness. You right. do need to see the bubbles. You do need to read the dialogue. That so. or it may all be done in a night vision look because of the characters needing to wear their night vision goggles. Okay. So. Well, that that could work for me as well. Yeah. Um, so looking at the cover of this, it's hard to tell just from the cover. 
It almost looks like the art style is like what we're going to talk about in just a moment, which is the art style from ongoing number 15, which is a complete change from what we've had in the first 14 issues of the ongoing series. Yeah, it really is. Um, and it, it reminds, it looks like it's probably going to be creating something the same way when you put all four of the countdown comics together and they created right. one picture. Yeah. It looks yeah. like that this one is going to be doing the same thing, but I do really enjoy this artwork. It's, it's very good. Um, yeah. Not only does it look like that, but I would say that of the four covers, it's going to go horizontally, and this is the upper right corner because that certainly looks yes. like the Star Trek Delta. It does. That um, we're seeing right there. Which I'm glad we can see it. I'm glad it's not in the complete darkness yet. So That's right. Um, okay, so ongoing news. We know that ongoing 18 now is going to be coming out. It's going to be dipping into the Uhura's past, which is really interesting. Um, right. You know, we we got Keenser's background, which exactly. was really the most yeah. important one. I, I'm glad that they did him first. Um, really, yeah. Because of all the characters wanting to know how they met each other, definitely Keenser was the one that was first on my list. Yeah, I, I felt like that that was a brilliant move by the by the writers here. Um, and, and, and now, finally... Uh, after Keenser, we're going to get to the point where uh, Ohura meets Spock, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm hopefully, I guess, how they they get together. So that should be interesting. Um, Actually, I am interested in that. That would be nice to know how how that came about. Yeah, especially since you know there's only really hinted at the very beginning of the original series on TV, and they just, it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, so I am very interested to see how um, these characters get there together. And then I think that it'll also be a great lead-in to the next movie um, because they did say they'd be dropping those hints uh, about the next movie. So I, I think, you know, getting these kind of backstories really helps prepare us for the characters we might see. Definitely so. And this one is going to be coming out, as I understand, in February so uh, as usual, we're a bit ahead of the actual releases. Of course, before that, we're going to get 16, which is going to be the conclusion of the Mirror Universe story uh, that we have right now in the current release, 15. And then 17, apparently in January, is going to be the origin, well, not origin, the backstory of how Bones and Kirk met one another. And I feel like that was kind of a little bit explained in the movie, but I guess there's going to be more to it. Yeah, it looks like that um, this is going to be the story of how Bones actually gets on that um, same okay. shuttle. And so it's going to be his backstory. Um, so that's really exciting for me. Uh, I loved the introduction of Bones in that film. I don't think it could have been any better. In fact, above Kirk, he was my favorite character in the movie. Uh, and so I'm very excited to see this. Um, I think that this will probably be one of my favorite ongoing. Okay. Good. So, so McCoy's road from divorce to Starfleet, I guess, basically. Yes. Since Which we so. get that great line, uh, all I have left are my bones. Yes, yes. Which apparently, as I understand it, Carl Urban came up with on the spot the day they were shooting that. It was a, not actually a scripted line. And I thought it was brilliant because it explained, finally for fans, why does Kirk call McCoy bones? Well, and... and shows how well I think that Carl Urban really knows that character. I, he, 
I think, put a lot of time and effort into that. And um, I think almost more than anybody else in the cast, he embodied that character, heart and soul. Um, and, and so I'm very excited that they're going to be giving him the spotlight in this this upcoming comic. Yeah, definitely. While we're talking about ongoing, I think we both had a chance today to download to our iPads ongoing number 15, which is the first part of the Mirror Universe. And, uh, well, the first thing that I noticed, of course, is that the art style is completely different from what we got in the first 14 issues. Uh, this is Very art different. by Erfan <laughs> by Fajar. Uh, I quite like it myself, but I know as I was sleeping here in Japan, I didn't catch everything that was happening over on your side of the world. And you told me there was a little bit of a controversy or a little bit of a stir online today surrounding this issue. There was, and it really revolved around the fact that when you open up the comic to the very first page of the comic, um, it seems to be the refit enterprise. Um, and then the very next panel shows Scotty and McCoy from the JJ verse talking in an observation lounge. And mm -hmm. so the question was whether or not this is a mistake or a part of the actual story. Um, and so our esteemed colleague, Greg, um, felt like that this was just a big mistake. Um, after reading the comic and, and looking at the conversation that's going on, um, it feels like to me that this is actually the first introduction of the mere universe. Um, right. And so that first, very first panel is showing us what Scotty is telling Bones, which he's trying to explain to Bones um, the whole idea of there being multiple universes uh, because they're talking about Prime Spock and how he got there and why he can't just go back and these temporal mechanics that can be such a headache. So um, to me, it really seems like um, that this enterprise is pointing to the fact that um, we're about to explore the mere universe and the JJ-verse. Yeah, it could be. I'm looking at it right now, and... The thing is, my first thought was very similar to that, that in the mm -hmm. mirror universe of the Abramsverse alternate timeline, the ship design mm -hmm. happened to be more like the old prime mm -hmm. refit enterprise, you know, from our own. Although in that first panel, the way they, they set the dialogue, it's as if the enterprise yeah. is at warp and this is our own JJ Abramsverse, Scotty and McCoy talking. So it's kind of weird. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've seen mistakes made in these comics, like um, in the Operation Annihilate comic where Kirk taps his comm badge and it chirps for him to call the ship like they would do in the next generation. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, like I also told Greg and I were talking about this, I felt like this was an awfully big mistake to slip through the proofing process. Yeah. So it must be done intentionally. Well, and the, the reason that I, I mentioned that is, and I think that is that when you look at page 17, that, that uh, mirror universe enterprise looks very similar to the enterprise that's seen in that first photo um, or in that first panel. It looks like that 
that enterprise as well. Um, so that's what leads me to believe that yeah. it's a it's a very confusing, um, it is confusing. illusion to the mere universe. Uh, because this is very it, mu- this is very similar to the Enterprise Mirror Universe episode where there's not really a lot of connection with the Enterprise characters or anything. They don't travel to the Mirror Universe. We well, there's none. Kinda, in, in Enterprise, yeah. that story is completely yeah. self-contained in the Mirror Universe. Yeah. Yes. Um, the only thing that 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 we got there was the connection actually with TOS and the Defiant right. slipping over. Um, so yeah. this is very much in that same vein, uh, and so. It, it so, was interesting. It's interesting. Um, I, I would say that I love the art style of this comic. I actually, I think I like it better than what they've been doing up to this point. I think that the ship is a little bit, the handling of the ship is a little bit sloppy. Uh, like you said, on this yes. particular page 17, you can tell that the nacelles are curved a bit. It does feel mm-hmm. a little bit more like the Abrams versus Enterprise, although it's still a lot like the Prime Universe refit that we saw from the motion picture forward. Uh, But there is one thing in here that has got to be just sloppy editing, which is the fact that when they zoom in to the ISS Enterprise, it's the NCC 1701D. Yeah, I... uh, It does look a little bit like somebody maybe was tracing a Next Generation comic from... um, you know the the Doctor Who crossover. I don't know, yeah. Uh, but yes, that so, is, that is quite a mistake there. <laughs> it is. The other thing I'll say in terms of art style in this comic is that the artist here, Fajar, is really good at drawing Uhura because Uhura looks really fantastic in this comic. She really does. I, I feel like at any moment she is just probably going to kick somebody's butt. Um, and, uh, I, I think that it's, it's really all to do with the fact that they've cut her hair. Yes. She's just ready to go to business on somebody. She is. Uh, she has very short hair. You can picture her. It's as if Halle Berry were playing Uhura and, uh, looks really nice. Now, speaking of hair, I did crack up laughing out loud the first time I saw Chekhov. Because I don't know what the <laughs> hell is going on with his hair. But this I, is hilarious. Yes. Yes. I was asking <laughs> got, the same question. It's like a fluffy mohawk. I don't know what's going on. Oh, you my know, um, well, what, what can you say about Chekhov? Uh, you know, they gave him <laughs> that really curly hair in the film. And um, they thought, well, how do we make that cool? We'll mohawk it. You know, at least it. he'll at least he'll look odd. Yeah, but uh, at any rate, uh, we're not going to give away the storyline here. I will just simply say that I was wondering what are they going to do with a mirror universe story in the Abrams verse because I don't want them to just rehash what we already know from all of Star Trek up to this point. And I will say, and tell me if you agree, I think they went in a really interesting direction with the story and. It makes it unique to this reboot of Star Trek, and I'm actually really looking forward to the next comic to find out what happens. Yeah, I took I completely agree with you. Um, I, I do think that they did a great job of creating something that's very new and different, um, and that does a good job of connecting actually with the JJ verse and not looking too much to connect uh, just with TOS. Um, 
and and so I was very pleased. Uh, I think that this is uh, they've learned a lot as they've gone along in, in this uh, comic series, and so I was very excited to see this. We are joined today. I'm very excited to introduce to everyone Kirsten Beyer, author of the newest version of the Voyager relaunch. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Kirsten. It's good to talk to you today, um, which has been really exciting. I um, I have been a big, huge fan of your books in Voyager. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I had... Uh, watched all of Voyager and um you know I liked it it's not my favorite of the episode or the series but um you started writing the series and and there was just something different about it and um it's one of the things that I really liked and you seem to really um like this universe a lot and so what is your history just in general with Star Trek okay um well I I first came to it as a little kid watching um, the original series. Uh, it was the only television show that my older brother and I could agree to watch and not fight over and lose TV privileges when I was really little. So uh, I saw a lot of it when I was young and then uh, came back to it a little bit in my teens, but not much, just kind of in the repeat thing. And um, But didn't really get serious about it until after graduate school. Um, both Next Generation and then Deep Space Nine started when I was in college and graduate school. And I didn't have time to watch any television pretty much at that point in my life. So um, I knew they existed, but I kind of missed them. And um, when I got out of school, um, I started watching uh, just syndicated reruns of Next Generation in no particular order. And uh, it sort of coincided with my time at night that I exercised. So I <laughs> would, would be um, watching and working out at the same time. And, and I just enjoyed them, you know. Um, but Voyager was that premiere, and I actually started watching that show because a number of people that I knew from graduate school were actually working on it, uh, some directors, some writers, um, people like that, and I was just sort of tuning in to watch their work, and it, within a few episodes, I was just kind of hooked. It was really fun for me, I think, because it was the first series that I was able to see from the very beginning and just follow it all the way through, um, although I got more involved with it, you know, as... Um, as the series went on. It wasn't, you know, two or three episodes in um, where I had an idea for an episode. And at that point in time, I wasn't um, writing anything. I started out as a performer, a ballet, a ballet dancer, actually. And then um, by the time I went through high school, college, and graduate school, had come out with degrees in English literature and a master's of fine arts in acting. And my goal at the time was just to pursue a career in acting. But once school got out, there was a lot less work right off the bat than I had hoped there would be, and I found myself with a lot of time on my hands. Um, and so I started watching Voyager. I had an idea for an episode. Um, I sort of put it together in my head and ran it by my husband, and he was like, well, yeah, that's cool, but what are you going to do, write it? And I was sort of annoyed and said, well, yes, I think I will. And um, there began me writing for Voyager. Um, I was lucky enough to have some friends who had actually auditioned for the pilot episode, so they had um, actual pages from the script that I could see to figure out how a show was laid out. I started really studying the show to figure out how long, you know, um, the different acts were and sort of how they structured stuff, and then uh, set to work writing my first episode, which I did in the first season. Um, what I didn't know at the time, which was actually very cool for me, was that Star Trek was one of the only shows 
on television ever that I know of that had this open submission policy for writers. Right. So usually if you're yeah. writing for a TV show, you have to have an agent submit material for you, and maybe they'll read it or won't, whatever. Star Trek actually accepted work from unrepresented writers. So you had to sign a release, but then you could send your script in, and they would read it. And they had a whole staff structure set up for reviewing and, and dealing with these manuscripts. So, um, so I sent off my first script. It was rejected. Um, I sent off my second script uh, maybe a year later. It was also rejected. Um, but by that point in time, the real point of script submissions was not so much to sell an episode. I know a few people did. But um, really what they were doing at that point was sort of looking for more general story ideas or just um, good writers. So the point should have been for me to get a pitch meeting to be able to go in and talk to the um, producers and writers and, and offer them story ideas. Um, but I didn't know that because I didn't really know anything about anything at that point in time. So my script got rejected and I just started writing other things um, because at that point in time writing had become the thing that sort of kept me sane when I wasn't acting because uh, it was just the outlet for all that creative stuff that I do. So um, it was maybe early in the fourth season of Voyager uh, where I saw an episode that actually made me so angry. I um, sat down and I wrote a very snotty letter to Jerry Taylor, who was the executive producer. Uh, oh, interesting. Essentially telling her that I was supposed to be working for her. <laughs> okay. And uh, Oh, nice. Yeah, I know, right? So she wrote me back, actually, and said, fine, come in and pitch. So oh, wow. there began my um, pitching for Voyager, which lasted uh, all the way through the seventh season. I would go in a couple of times a year and uh, meet with the writers. I never sold anything, um, but every time I came in, they always liked enough of what I had done to say that they were going to, um, what they call, float a couple of the stories past the entire writing staff. So yeah, so I started pitching. Uh, they would float... Um, an episode or something that I had suggested past the other writers, but I never heard anything more than that. But they also just kept asking me to come back. Um, and so in those few years, I actually ended up developing a couple of more full scripts that I wrote, um, as well as, you know, probably 100 different ideas for stories, none of which served me particularly well now, although one of them uh, was used in the first Trek novel I ever wrote, which was String Theory Book 2 Fusion. The whole Tuvok arc was an was part of an episode that I had created uh, and pitched to the writers at that point in time. Oh, nice. Um, but since then, you know, the show, the characters and the, and the whole setup has evolved so much that none of that material is really useful, um, it, except in as much as it made me a really uh, solid, gave me a very solid understanding of the show and the characters and how it all sort of works. So, right. So that's how it started. Wow, that's that's, that's very interesting. Awesome. <laughs> the I, really the the tenacity to just kind of stick with it, though you know you you kind of get rejected over and over again. But it seems like that you to do this over and over again, you fell in love with this these characters, or what was it that just kind of kept you plugging away at this? The thing with Voyager that was fun for me, and actually ended up not working out so well when the show was on the air, but now works incredibly well, is that um, because of the way Voyager was intentionally structured by the producers, um, meaning it was meant to be every single episode week to week um, was sort of a self-contained story. Yeah, they had a couple of big two-parters and events kinds of things, but basically at the end of any given episode, they wanted all the toys back in the box because the way they intended to syndicate it um, 
meant that they were going to sell it to places that were going to be able to show it kind of in any order. So anybody needed to be able to watch any single episode and know exactly what was going on and go from there. Um, this was similar to what they did with Next Generation. Right. Um, it was very different from what they had done with Deep Space Nine, where they intentionally did lots of long serialized arcs of major stories with the Dominion War and all that kind of stuff. Right. But Voyager was, was a conscious break from that. So um, while that might have been good for people who were going to someday watch the show in syndication, for the rest of us who were following it week by week, um, it, it, it left a lot of things unsettled and unanswered. You know, uh, There were lots of places where we could have seen lots of character growth and development, and it was just all kind of cut short or reset time and time and time again, which is not to say that people didn't grow and change in those seven years. Of course they did, but not to the degree that I think they could have or maybe should have or would have had that not been the, the mandate sort of from the producers. Right. Like poor dumb Harry ending up being an ensign for seven years. Right. <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah. Um, then, you know, then there's, you know, all kinds of just relationships, issues with the whole crew tensions and the Maquis. I mean, in a lot of ways, as much as I adore Voyager, and of course I do, um, it's often seemed to me like just one long series of missed opportunities. Yeah you know, for the writers. And the That's what we, we talk about that quite often, actually, on our various shows when we talk about Voyager. So it, it was, it, it, it's a weakness in some ways, but it serves me well now because now that it's just me and the characters, I can go deep in a lot of ways that they mm -hmm. just couldn't on the right. show. And right. I can connect things and um, fill in blanks and um, move things forward in a way that feels organic to me because I don't have pesky other writers or producers or actors coming in and saying, oh, but I wouldn't do it that way. Um, it's essentially me and the editorial staff at Pocket Books. So, you know, we sort of work it out as we go. One thing I wanted to ask you about is that I find, as I read Star Trek novels, sometimes what throws me out of a novel is when an author is unable to capture the voice of the character uh -huh. so that I feel like it's really the character. But when you write Voyager, I, I feel like you really, really have your finger on those characters. Like the voices, I believe these are the real characters that I watched for seven years on TV. The voices are so accurate. How did you get a feel for writing those characters? By watching the show, you know, I've probably seen each episode more than 10 or 15 times. Yeah. Um, you know, I watched them all the first time around. I rewatched them every single time I was working on uh, new scripts to and new story ideas to put together. Um, I was also constantly reading, rereading synopses and, and reviews and all kinds of other material as the show was in production. And then once I started writing it, obviously, pretty much every time I would start a new novel, I would go back and pretty much rewatch the whole series. Um, not just to get the voices really clear in my head, but also because, you know, it, it's oftentimes in. Um, these small moments that will happen between the characters that aren't even on a line where you'll see a reaction or you'll see a gesture or something that tells you so much about what's really going on inside the character's head. Um, and those things tend to stick with me. Or little bits about their history or the past that they might have dropped that, you know, may or may not have had any relevance um, at the moment that I can then pick up on and sort of develop from there. Um, it's one of the it's one of the cool things actually about doing media tie-in books where you're dealing with an established universe. Um, it's like you've got this big puzzle in front of you, and you go digging for the missing pieces, you know, and then you find them and are able to sort of set them in place, and it makes the whole thing richer and more vivid. And 
and it's a challenge, but it's also really kind of the, the fun of the game that I, <laughs> that I enjoy in this, you know? Yeah, and you can really see um, in your different novels um, throughout the series, whether, you know, Full Circle or Unworthy, um, Children of the Storm and, and the Eternal Tide, you will almost always in those books reference something that happened in the series or um, kind of give shed new light on something and in a way that, you know, um, the writers, I think, on the show could only have hoped to have that kind of potential. And I think that's what made your books so successful in creating these characters and making them um, very real and very full um, in the same way that when I think of the Voyager characters now, I think of your books. I don't necessarily think of the show. It's because when um, I read your books, I see all of the potential coming out that the show had when it started with Caretaker. Um, and, you know, these were great characters. There was nothing wrong with them when they started. Um, you know, you just, like you said, they when you you got through that series you were like oh wow that you know i can see where some of the characters have grown and some of them really haven't and but all those missed opportunities hurt i think in some ways among the most successful were tom and delana yeah exactly and and, and even to a degree and you know people probably hate me for this but neelix you know i know he gets a lot of takes a lot of crap for being this you know a lot of people don't like that character um, but every time I rewatch the series, I'm more impressed by where he started and where he ended up, you know, and how, in some ways, how moving that journey was. Um, it, it just, it, it, uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me. It's not that he's my favorite character or anything, but, but I think that's underappreciated in a lot of ways. Yeah, he really does get a rounded um, kind of arc, you know, going from being a loner, his, you know, he's he's estranged from his people and. Um, you know, by the very end, he's become a family man on the ship to everyone around him, and then he literally gets to do that at New Telax. And so, well, um, and I and I also, I mean, I always forgot the the little scenes that wouldn't necessarily um, uh, they wouldn't they they weren't necessarily the major point of any given story, but he was so good at sitting down with any given character and sort of just getting them to come clean about what was really going on with them. That's true. Uh, in his own almost naive way. So uh, there, there, was a, there, there was a lot going on there, I think. Yeah. Um, that, that, uh, that, that it's easy to miss if you're just sort of looking at the surface kind of clownish persona that, that, that they often gave him. Well, you obviously had, you know, some extensive knowledge of, of Voyager. When did you know or, or how did it come about that you were going to take over for Christy Golding? Because, you know, we start with Christy and she's got four books and then all of a sudden Voyager just stops. Yeah, well, um, it didn't actually. I mean, uh, that's the perception because of the amount of time that lapsed between the end of the Spirit Walk duology and the beginning of Full Circle. But mm -hmm. there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, behind the scenes that, that impacted that to a degree. So now the, the, the Full Circle was not the first Voyager book I wrote. That was actually Fusion. And then at the same time right. I wrote uh, the short story Isabeau Shirt for the uh, 10th anniversary anthology Distant Shores. Right. Um, what had happened was uh, the editor who was in charge of Voyager, when Christy was working on it, moved on. And at the same time, Christy, who's an incredibly talented and gifted writer and a very busy woman, 
mm-hmm. um, was, yes. was working in a lot of other universes and doing quite well in them. So Marco, who had been, Marco Palmieri, who had been in charge of Deep Space Nine, among many other things, uh, was sort of given Voyager right around the time it was time to develop stuff for the 10th anniversary. And he made a conscious choice, rather than picking up the relaunch at that point, to do an anniversary trilogy and anthology to sort of celebrate Voyager um, from the time it was, you know, in series. So right. um, I had met, I had actually contacted Pocket Books mm, several months before I met Marco for the first time. Uh, and um, that was through uh, my writing partner, Heather Jarman, who had been tapped by Marco a year maybe earlier to start writing for Deep Space Nine. And um, so I worked with her on all of her books and short stories and the things that she was doing. And um, she, of course, returned the favor for all my non-Star Trek stuff that I was doing at the time. Um, But uh, finally she said, you know, you should really get in touch with Pocket about Voyager. And she gave me the name of the lady to contact, and I sent her a bunch of material. And like 24 hours later we were on the phone talking about what I figured was going to be my first Voyager book at the time. And she and I worked together for a few months, and then she moved on. So there was sort of nothing for me to do until I met Marco. I told him my whole story, and he asked to see writing samples, and then sat down with Heather to um, sort of coordinate the whole anniversary thing. And they decided at that point that I would write a story for the for the anthology. And then it was like I got a call from Marco one day. I think it was like in November, uh, several years ago, um, and he said, "Do you want to write a short story?" And I was jazzed. Absolutely, that'd be great. And then, like, a few hours later, he called back, and he's like, yeah, you want to write a book, too? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so so um, that was a pretty good day, as I recall. Oh, man, no kidding. So so, so I had done the work um, with Heather and uh, Jeff Lang and Marco on um, all the anniversary stuff. And then uh, it was probably six months or more before those books actually came out. And what was happening during that time behind the scenes was that all the other authors who were dealing with Trek uh, were sort of picking up after um, Nemesis. And um, so we had the whole A Time To series and then a whole bunch of other sort of standalone books out there where really all of the characters from all the series were kind of up for grabs. So um, you start having Janeway appear in the A Time To stuff as Admiral Janeway now from the point where they get back. and then I think Keith started using the doctor. Um, there were just all sorts of little kind of bits and pieces. And then the decision was made to do Titan, and um, and Tuvok was going to be a part of that. So um, it wasn't all that long after Fusion came out that Marco got in touch with me to start talking about taking Voyager forward. Um, and I prepared a bunch of material based on the first conversations that we had, and that was actually the point. That was as before Dishonor was being written. So I actually knew at that point that Janeway was going to be killed in that book. Um, and so I was sort of working with that in mind. And also, of course, that Tuvok was going to be gone and whatever. Um, but I sort of developed all that material. And then it sat there for like a year. And I was thinking, oh, my God, is this, you know, what, what could possibly be happening here? And what I didn't know was that in the course of that year, they had also begun to develop Destiny. Um, and once mm-hmm. that was sort of in play, Marco had made the decision that he wanted what I was going to be doing with Voyager to be able to tie in with that. So it, it really wasn't a matter of nobody was thinking about Voyager, nobody cared. Right. It was There was all this other stuff going on 
um, the editors and staff felt like they were using the Voyager characters all over the place, so it's not like they weren't getting any airtime. Um, and then everybody wanted to sort of shoot for this sort of cool tying everything together with Destiny. So I got a little bit delayed because of that development, but I'm not in the least bit sorry because it was such a fantastic mm-hmm. um, story uh, and gave us so much new information to use in terms of what are we going to do with Voyager going forward. Right. You know, Because I really felt like having them stuck in the Alpha Quadrant just sort of being another ship wasn't really getting us anywhere. It, 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 it makes sense, I guess, in a real world kind of situation that these people just got back from seven years in the Delta Quadrant. Those who want to stay in Starfleet and keep doing what they do are going to want to be close to home and whatever. But in terms of setting Voyager apart from the other series and having it somehow still feel like it was fulfilling its mission in some ways, um, I really felt like we needed to separate them again and have them doing something that only they could do. And, and Destiny really gave us the perfect setup for that you know, by destroying the Borg, but then at the same time leaving it sort of as an open question of could they really be gone? I mean, is this really possible? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it'd be the same way, too, if, if, you know, Titan was just another starship hanging around, you know, the Alpha Quadrant and not exploring the way it is. Uh, it it The galaxy starts to feel small, especially when you have slipstream drive and, you know, the, the Aventine can be across, you know, the galaxy seems like in seconds these days so um yeah I, I i do like that i think that 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 makes a lot of sense though when you just uh explained just the background because there was a lot going on i mean the the deep space nine um relaunch was kind of winding down and um there was a lot happening um and i was really glad when they kind of tied it all together and you know david's really good at that um i mean if you want epic uh you know destruction yeah david mack is your guy and so in fact i just finished his newest book a couple of days ago um and he's doing it again so um, <laughs> yes he is <laughs> which is great uh i almost feel like they need to have him come in every like year or two and do like the end of it it's almost like the end of a season like david comes in and he finishes up with a trilogy to start a new season so yeah i don't know if that's really i think i can see why it would seem that way um, but he has written so much in between. I mean, the man is a machine. Yeah, you know. He is. Well, tell me a little bit just about um, you know you decide. I mean, they give you Voyager, um, yeah, and you get to jump off from Destiny, which was a huge life-shattering event in, in every Star Trek character's life in the 24th century. Yeah, um, he, he he broke the toys pretty bad. Yeah, well, and he. <laughs> You know, he he really broke a lot of the characters, um, and so. Um, but the fun me... thing about that was, while he was working on Destiny, once all the different writers were in place for everything that was going to be happening, right before and right after, we were all working together. Mm. So, and that's unusual. Uh, yeah. You know, for a book series to do that, but it worked out incredibly well. I mean, it was Chris Bennett and Keith Canado and Dave Mack and me and Mike Martin. And then Bill Leishner came in toward the tail end as he was picking up Losing the Peace. Mm-hmm. And it allowed us to, we, we all read each other's manuscripts as we were working on them. And if we had specific issues come up with characters uh, that belonged sort of to somebody else, we would get in touch and say, hey, I'm going to do this, is that cool with you? And yeah. could sort of inform, you know, what was going to happen. Being a guy who reads, you know, other media tie-ins and, and seeing large series come together or, or not come together by how the authors work together, um, 
reading all those books in that time period, you know, right after Destiny, it fit together so well. Um, yeah. And, and, and there wasn't anything where I was like, I, I just don't see this, you know, really meshing. No, it, it worked, I think, perfectly. And so um, tell me a little bit about just mapping out the storyline then from Voyager, you know, uh, w- from Destiny onward. You know, I had, I basically had, I think it was three years that I had to cover in that book in Full Circle. And I had originally planned it to be three books. Um, when I did my first draft of the major outlines, when I had all the Destiny uh, material to, to work with, um, I had actually put together three stories. The first one was sort of the whole Klingon adventure. Um, I, wanted uh-huh. to have, I wanted to have one book before the events of Before Dishonor where Janeway died and um, before Tuvok was taken away where we could have sort of the whole crew back together for one last hurrah. Right. And then I had a whole second book planned that was essentially the second half of Full Circle, um, where everybody's dealing with the events of Destiny and the preparations are in place for, for launching the fleet. Um, and then uh, I had an entirely different third book planned that uh, we'll never see the light of day now uh, because of how it's all transpired. Um, because once I had developed all the material, what happened was Marco said, you know, I really want the first two books that you have to be one book. I really want mm-hmm. to begin right where Spirit Walk left off, and I wanted to end with the launch of the fleet. So That's a tall order. Yeah, it was. And I fought it for as long as I could. And then I said, okay, that's fine. I work for you. <laughs> we'll do it this way. <laughs> um, but, but I also think he was right. I mean, there were, I think, I think had we done it the way I had intended, I probably would have lost a lot of readers after the first book. There were a number mm-hmm. of people who, reading the first part of Full Circle, were just not thrilled. Um, because it was very conscientiously just sort of another adventure. It was setting up a lot of things that would come later, but it was, you know, um, it, I, I think I think even though there's a there's a there's a contrast for the readers in parts one and parts two of that book that they often find difficult to deal with, um, mm-hmm. the whole story still works together the way it should. Right. And by by giving the readers picking up where we where we had left off and then really by the end of that book, letting them know exactly where we were going, I think that's what really hooked them. Yeah, going definitely. Forward, more than just doing that first book would have. So, you know, as always, Marco was right, but, you know, whatever. Well, and, and if I think what you needed to, um, and, and what you did so well, is you needed Janeway to be in full circle. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, the the way that that, really worked with her and Chakotay and, um, you know, at that point, um, every fanned boy and girl that was a fan of them together was your biggest fan. Um, <laughs> and, uh, because For I mean, that gets five minutes and then exactly, they were the end of the book exactly. again. Yeah. You know, um, but you know, everybody had, had, um, wanted that to happen and, and we all know Kate did not want that to happen, but, yeah. um, I, uh, I think that it, it's nice that in in the novels we're getting to at least explore some of those different areas that they would never touch on the show. Yeah, well, I mean, on the one hand, I completely understand her reservations. She was very clear about the demographic to which that the television show was being marketed. And she was also very conscious of the sort of iconic position she was going to have going forward in terms right. as the first female captain. And... um I think was incredibly conservative with her choices in in that regard so as not to tip the character too far in, in any sort of given direction. Um, whereas I, I think she went deep in a lot of other ways 
that whole sort of remaining aloof thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, 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 I understand the choice. It might not necessarily have been mine, but I do understand it. And I also understand the reality of how when you establish that kind of tension between two characters, um, once it is satisfied or fulfilled, it can become a little bit boring after that. Everybody right, wants exactly. to see these two characters get together, and then nobody cares, and everybody stops watching the show. So, it, you know, I get it. But um, I, don't think, I don't think I was free to ignore what I had always seen as um, a real potential relationship there. You know, and it was something that I had tackled as far back as the first short story I ever wrote. Um, when I was pitching to Voyager for the TV show, I, this, it, it began as a story I had pitched. It was, it, it was very different circumstances, but the, the core of it was the same, that basically Janeway and Chakotay need to have a conversation about this because yeah. as much as it had been sort of you know, doinked around the edges with resolutions, um, nothing had ever really been solved. And for me, it, there was this constant sense of, well, what did I miss? because they seem to be in a very different place now, but how did they get there? And, um, and the, the, show, the, the show writers that I was working with at the time weren't necessarily against the idea because I wasn't going to change anything about the relationship, but it never really went anywhere after that. Um, so Marco was the one who sort of brought it back and said, no, let's let them have that conversation and just sort of you know, lay it out exactly why we're doing what we're doing here. And so I, I had gotten to do that, but it also made perfect sense to me that once the constraints of being lost in the Delta Quadrant were no longer on them, that as two adults who were attracted to each other, that they would, you know, try to figure out at some point what that meant for them. Right. And especially since, you know, Chakotay wasn't really in Starfleet at that point, and it wasn't what he really wanted for his life, um... You mean and, uh, you mean when he first encountered Voyager? Um, no, not when he first when they had gotten when they got back um, from, and he decided he didn't want to be captain of the uh, Voyager for. Well, a while. actually, no, he did. He so. he. I, it, here's the funny thing: I just finished rereading Homecoming and Farther Shore over the last couple of nights. Oh, good, because it's been a long time for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for research purposes, and um. And yeah, the, the bottom line was, like everybody, he took a little time when he first got back yeah. to sort of deal with himself. And then, of course, the whole board crisis that was concocted right. for that book that they all dealt with. But by the end of The Farther Shore, he was captain of Voyager. Right. Janeway had worked to make that happen, and yeah. he didn't seem to have any reservations about it. So, um, yeah, I mean, th- there were a lot of challenges with the Chicote character. Mm-hmm. Um, the primary one, my sense being that he had been given the captaincy of Voyager, but I, I almost felt like in some ways he hadn't earned it. Yeah. Like Janeway felt like he had, but I don't know if that the people watching the show or reading the books necessarily felt that way. Right, exactly. Nor were they going to be content to follow him without him being a much um, deeper and more fleshed out character than we had yeah. had an opportunity to see up until that point. Yeah. The other thing when you had it... mentioned just a minute ago that I wanted to go back to mm-hmm. was this notion that Full Circle needed Janeway. And yeah. how important it was to be able to, to show a little bit of her before we got to her death, because that had been a big, huge gaping hole, you know, for the yeah. for the fan for the you know, because in the Spirit Walk books particularly, yes, she had her own mission, but she wasn't on the ship, and it was kind of she was already sort of being sidelined in a weird way, and then she was featured in these small ways in a lot of other books, um, and even though before Dishonor featured her death, it wasn't in a lot of ways 
it didn't feel like the point of that book. I mean, we were spending right. so much time on the Enterprise with the mutiny and the Seven and the whatever. And so it, 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 I knew that for people who cared about Janeway, as I did, um, I just needed to spend a lot more time with her before we let her go. You know what I mean? Exactly. Well, and I think something that you just said about Chakotay, um, I did not like Chakotay in the show. He is, uh, of all the characters, even below Neelix for me. Um, and it's just because they never gave him any depth that didn't necessarily have to do with any kind of ethnicity about him, which I felt was kind of racist in some ways you know just like we're going to i don't think it was racist as much as it was let's very conscientiously not offend anyone yeah 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 um but then you know he then you know they don't do anything with him and you know janeway um and and so he just kind of becomes the person who just says orders all the time but we don't get to know anything about him but what i loved about what you did with jacote is i actually like this character now Um, because I always felt like Bertrand could have brought so much, um, authority and, um, you know, just kind of, um, you know, raw manhood to the role. Like he was such a man's man and he could have really been that on the show, but they just never let that happen. And what you did with him as being captain of Voyager again and, um, going back to the Delta Quadrant and really taking on that role, um, and dealing with the, the death of Janeway in the way that he did, which I, I thought was, um, uh, very moving to see him deal with this lost love that he was just about to have in his hands for the first time <laughs> and it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then really take on this role of, okay, I'm, I'm going to be an awesome captain. And I really liked, I really liked this character now. Um, yeah. Well, it, it, it was taking him from sort of captain by accident to captain by choice. Right. You know, when, when Janeway first offers him command of Voyager, what's he going to say? You know, he's not going to say no. <laughs> right? So, right. So, you know, and then they have the whole spirit walk thing and whatever. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, I felt like I needed to sort of break him completely and start him over from the ground up. Mm. And using Janeway's death, Janeway's death became a very... Um, uh, it's not a happy way to do that, but it, it, it was a great opportunity to do that. You know, he just, we we needed to see him in control of his life. He had, It seemed like he stood for a long time in Catherine's shadow, which frankly is a problem that a lot of first officers have. Yeah. I mean, the only one who didn't suffer from that, to my mind, was Kira on yeah. Deep Space Nine. Not at all. You know, she could have, <laughs> but they gave, they gave her so much personal development um, yeah. that it, it, you know, it, it was never an issue. But Riker certainly had that to a degree. Um, yeah. And, and Chakotay suffered from it even worse. So um, I don't know how much of it is what Beltram brought to the role. I don't know how much of it is what the writers did. Um, you know, again, I think it was everybody being very careful with their female captain. You know, she's in charge, so, you know, nobody better cross her, and we really have to make sure that everybody is, you know, absolutely following her direction. Even when they challenge mm. her, um, you know, it, 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 I, I, I think it has a lot more to do with the, the dynamics of the entire show than Chakotay as a character, you know. Right. But yeah. the, the other reality is that now he's not the first officer, now he's a captain. So, you know, almost just by putting him in that chair 
and having him want it and want to be there and want to do well by his family. Um, you know, it, it, it allows the readers to see him in a, in a different and much more attractive way, I think. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, that that's something that you really do well with Voyager and you captured that essence of it, which is Voyager was always about family. This yeah. is a family. Um, you spend seven years with people um, bickering and fighting and, and being on a very small ship. Uh, you, you are going to become more than just a crew. You're going to become family. Um, yeah. And there's only 120 people on Voyager, I think. That's the crew complement. Yeah. 40, yeah, so it's very small anyway, it, you know. Um, it's like a small Irish town. Yeah. Um, Let's not speak of those episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Say like Fairhaven. <laughs> exactly. Uh -uh. Um, but, uh, it, I, I think what I really liked about that is that he becomes that, um, that kind of father figure for everyone on the ship and they can look to him, um, because they have seen the way that he's gone through this horrible loss, um, and... Well, I think of, I don't think of him so much as a father. I mean, I think Janeway is a very maternal figure. Right. But I think I really feel now that we have more a group of, of peers. We have mm. a group of people who have shared some really rich experiences together and experiences mm -hmm. that nobody else has any insight into. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so they really are at different times each other's touchstones. You know, there's, right. there's times when Chakotay is weak, particularly... Um, in the second part of Full Circle, where, you know, Tom and Harry are sitting there looking for a way to, you know, pull him out. But they, and it's not a matter of rank necessarily that they don't, right. aren't able to do that. It's a matter of personal life experiences. You know, what are they mm -hmm. going to say to this man? They haven't gone through what he's going through. They've suffered their own, in their own ways, but, you know, not not in the same way that, that he has. And so it, it's, um, I don't know, yeah, I don't, I don't see him so much as a father, and I don't really want to see Janeway so much as a mother, right? Anymore, but um, but uh, but just a really really strong group of sort of uh, what I what I think of as found family, not the people that right. you were born related to, but the people that become your world as you go on through your life. You know, definitely. Um, so you get to. Um... Right, Voyager, you know that Peter David has left open this door that, you know, if Pocket wants to, it can do something with Janeway still because she may or may not be dead, which is the right. greatness of, you know, ending up in uh, female Q's arms when you die. Yeah. Um, and Lucky so, break that. Exactly. So, <laughs> I, and, you know, she's definitely not Janeway's favorite person. Um Right. What was the inspiration there for bringing Janeway back, and and how did that come about? And and then just first of all, too, was that kind of just a mandate that Pan Pocket wants to bring Janeway back? So, uh, you get to write Voyager, but enjoy bringing Janeway back in a way that doesn't piss everybody off. <laughs> it was it was actually a little bit more complicated than that, um, and it's something that I haven't uh, gone into a lot of detail with, or actually any detail with, in discussions with the fans because. It's kind of a situation where part of this is my story to tell and part of it isn't. So um, the stuff that I say, you're just going to have to take my word for. You're just going to have to take my word for. Okay. But um, when when I first started writing the Voyager relaunch, at the time with the editors that I was working with, there was no intention of bringing Janeway back. Um, yes, Peter had left the door open 
at the request of the licensor, which is CBS, um, which now owns all of it. Um, because I think there was just a sense of, you know, let's cover all of our bases here. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people have, like, theorized that, oh, well, they might want to use her in a movie again or whatever. I don't think that was it. I think it was just a matter of, you know, this is, a, this is an incredibly significant character. Um, let, let's just leave the door open, okay? Um, but it's always up to us, the writers and the editors, as to whether or not you're going to walk through that door. And right. as far as the editorial staff was concerned, we weren't going to go there. What we really wanted to do was spend some time dealing with how, how is this family going to react when they lose Janeway. Um, it was a story that just hadn't been told at that point. You know, if the Enterprise had lost Picard at some point, um, that would have been one thing. Deep Space Nine did lose Cisco, but it was always sort of understood on some level that he was coming back. It was kind of right. a matter of when. Right. So um, it wasn't quite the same thing. This was sort of a brutal, um, horrible ripping away of this incredibly important person in all of their lives. And let's go deep with that and see you know, how the, how the characters and how the story develops from there. Um, and all of that was going well. There was no sense of, uh, there, there was no, I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, the books couldn't have been selling all that well without Janeway. Well, you know, no. <laughs> the books have sold beyond anybody's wildest expectations. Um, it, it, what happened was um, staff came up with this idea that they felt very strongly about and they brought to me, um, which was they wanted to tie Eden to the queue. In their reading oh, wow. of what I had done with Full Circle and Unworthy and Children of the Storm especially, that's where they had decided I was going with that story. It wasn't, <laughs> okay, but the reality of this work is when the editor, editorial staff says something to you like that, you have to sort of listen, you know? I mean, I couldn't just sort of dismiss out of hand and go, well, no, I'm not going to do that. You know what I'm saying? But, right. but um, and the other key thing about this project when they brought it to me was, first of all, let's tie Eden to the queue. And second of all, this does need to be a big event book, okay? Mm. So in the same way that David George's um, two previous two D-Space Nine books were kind of a big event book with the destruction of D-Space Nine, you're beginning to see now right. how David Mack's trilogy is a big event thing for Next Generation. Mine was the big event for Voyager. Um, and that was very conscientiously done. So they wanted a mm. big, epic story. They wanted the stakes to be incredibly high. They wanted, um, they wanted a great deal of destruction in the sense that they wanted the threat that the, the crew was facing to be so large that it, of necessity, was going to mean we were going to lose a lot of people. Okay? Mm -hmm. And that was actually the, the, the area where I ended up having the most difficult uh, discussions with my editors um, because we went back and forth about exactly how much we were going to do there. Um, but, but the mandate was, let's, let's tie Eden's story to the queue, which is, which is in, I, I got it in some ways, because there is a unique thing between the queue and Voyager. You know, right. yes, the queue had a lot to do with Next Generation, but it also did have a lot to do with Voyager, and so when that came up, I was sort of like, oh, yeah, okay, I get that. But the problem for me was, okay, so if we're bringing the queue into the story, then we're bringing Janeway back, Right. And they were sort of like, well, I don't know, do you want to? And it was like, well, I, you can't not. Because yeah. if I'm a reader and I open a Voyager novel and I see Q, I need to know what happened to Janeway. <laughs> I mean, I just, you can't exactly. do that now. You know, I can't just tell this great Q Eden story and not deal with the fact that, that we lost saw Janeway with the Q. That's not going to happen. So I was given the latitude as far as how much I wanted to do with Janeway. 
in this book, um, you know, they literally, I could have told an entire story, had Eden with the cue, with the thing, and the ships all blow up and whatever, and Janeway could have come back on the last page of the book in a flash of light and asked for coffee, and they would have been fine with that. Um, where I sort of came into it was to say, you know what, no, if we're going to do all of this, then we're, we're going to tell Janeway's story. We're going to go ahead and make use of what Peter left us, and we're going to walk through that door, and we're going to embrace it fully, and we're going to go from here. And they were fine with that, too. So that's how we mm -hmm. got Eternal Tide. That is an awesome story in itself. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, and I, I really, uh, we talked to Dayton last week, and it was it's so neat to hear how, you know, authors might not even see something in their own work and somebody can point it out to them and, oh, well, I can see how that makes sense, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's really neat to see how, um, I, I feel like this is one of the things that I've enjoyed about Trek uh, literatures. A lot of the time, I feel like the editorial staff is just so good. Um, they, they know what will work and what won't work, um, most of the time and uh I, you know i applaud them for letting you do this because i i feel like it works yeah well i mean the good news is they are they tend to be or they can be very very easy to work with i mean we respect them and their position and their ideas and they respect ours too i mean it does not to say we don't slog it out you know when when um it, particularly with the eternal tide with the issue of the destruction of all of those ships, I knew yeah. that would be a really tough thing for the readers to swallow, and I, I actually resisted for as long as I possibly could. Not because I'm, you know, like morally opposed to the idea that this is a dangerous undertaking exploring space and that bad things are going to happen when we do that, but for me it's almost a matter of destruction fatigue, you know? We, right. we, we killed 63 billion people in, in Destiny, okay? Anything we do now that's less than that is going to be like, oh, whatever. And doing more than that is sort of inconceivable. So why are we going down this road? Um, but, you know, where I sort of came to with the eternal tide was that if we're going to present a threat that is massive enough to warrant Q breaking the rules of the continuum to show Janeway how to come back to life, Right. Um, and insert her back into that reality so that she can hopefully save his life. Um, it, it has to be a bigger deal than, than most. Now, I can tell you as a writer, the Omega continuum is very bad. And if we go there, bad things will happen. <laughs> and maybe you'll believe me. But odds are you won't. You know, um, I mean, you sort of have to, um, you know, you make your choice and you, you pay the price and you, and you move on. So... When I set up the Omega Continuum as the ultimate destructive force of the universe, you know, bad things have to happen in order for that to be real for the readers, you know. Um, but where I was able to succeed, because literally the discussion began with, let's destroy every ship except Voyager. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, we're not going there. Um, partially for practical reasons in that I knew that Demeter and Galen were going to be out of the picture for this book. So, right. you know, there, there was no dragging them into it. Um, but, but even with the idea that we were going to lose a lot of technology this time around, what was most important to me was, was that we were going to, A, save as many people as we possibly could because I needed the crew to have something of a win 
right. for themselves even before Janeway came back. I mean, Janeway coming back is sort of a win on a personal level. But but here's the thing. Like, if, if I'm Chakotay and I've been off saving Riley and her people and I show up at this rendezvous point and I see all of these ships destroyed and all of these people gone, I don't think that even he would go, okay, let's figure out what went wrong here. I think he would say, engage the slipstream drive, let's go home, and we'll sort it out later. Because there's just sort of only so much you can possibly take. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So so by presenting them with a problem that they could at least partially solve, and then also by making the loss of the crew that we did lose, the sacrifice that they made was very meaningful to the resolution of the story going forward in the sense that it bought everybody else time to figure out how to solve Omega and also didn't make the destruction any worse. Um, you know, that to me um, was worthwhile. That, that, that made it okay for me. The fact that mm. they were sacrificing themselves for a reason. They weren't just, you know, destroyed in the blink of an eye. Although yeah, I've taken I, a lot of heat for that when it came to Amanda, <laughs> which is, you know, no, I, I, no end. I was, just a, I was just about to say, what I, when I read the book the second time, when Amanda disappeared, yeah. um, it, it clicked for me just how terrible this is because she doesn't see it coming like to me that was the thing that showed me just how bad omega was it wasn't even just the ships all being destroyed but when it just takes amanda and it's in the you know the blink of an eye and she's gone and nobody will ever remember her except for q um junior it was it was heartbreaking um because i was really loving her character and her interactions with junior um in the book and so yeah, I definitely, I think you, I, I saw that you took a lot of heat for that, um, but I think they're wrong, so um, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, well, what, with, what surprises me is the overwhelming affection for this character that we had seen in all of one episode and never right. heard from again, as far as I know. Not that that's a reason to kill a character, not that, oh, well, nobody cares about her, so, you know. I mean, because the reality is uh, there was actually a poll taken a long time ago where people were asked to rank their least favorite Star Trek characters of all time. And number one on that list was Q Jr. Hmm. Huh. I would have thought it would have been Wesley. Yeah. Nope. He might have been in the top five, but number one on that list was Q Jr. And so when I proposed what I wanted to do with Jr. in this book to my editors, they sort of brought that up to me and they were like, you know, you're taking a character that nobody likes and whatever. And, and so part of you thinks, well, okay, then nobody's going to mind if I kill him. But, the reality is, no, that makes my job that much harder because now I have to make people love him in order for his success, his sacrifice right. to have meaning. Um, and, you know, giving him Amanda as a friend just making made perfect sense to me in, in, in you know, immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that, that, um, that he would lose her in this horrible, brutal way mm-hmm. also made sense to me. This is something that I don't necessarily understand when I read responses to this stuff that people always seem to think that when a death of any import happens in these stories it needs to be accompanied by like a full orchestra with the strings and the whole do you know what I'm saying like right like it should be foreshadowed and everybody should have time to come to grips with it and whatever and I know that sometimes that happens in life but that hasn't been my personal experience of death yeah um and so I sort of don't feel obligated as a writer to make that my character's experience of death either. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 It, it, and, and, you know, to 
big captains in, in Starfleet history, Kirk and Janeway, both go out the same way. Yeah. Um, they go out very kind of brutally and without fanfare. And so, yeah. um, you know, if they can do that to Captain Kirk and Janeway, then what do you yeah. expect from Amanda Rogers? So. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it just, it, it, I think it cheapens it when it, when it um, becomes overly melodramatic to the point that everybody sort of sees it coming and can, and can wrap their brains around it. I, I think that yeah. it's, a much better experience for the reader. I think it connects them more to the characters and that it's like, wait a minute, what you're just gone. You know, how did that work? And what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah, but it, 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 it has surprised me no end there. There's been a lot of complaints that I wasted characters here and I, I just, I can't agree. <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, um, we're telling when we're telling stories mm -hmm. like this, you know, bad things are going to happen, and that's just part of the deal. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I, you know, I, I read it twice. I had to read it twice actually because when I was um, when I read it the first time, I was like, okay, I'm going to review this. There's a lot in this book. I have to read this again, um, and I don't usually have to do that. Um, but sorry, <laughs> you, no, no. But what I loved is that I could read it again. You know, I just literally started it the next day. Um, and went right back into it, and I was finding so much stuff that I had missed. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's the testament to just how deep this book is. And and you didn't. Uh, this is where I want to go next. Is that you you really take um a I, I think a different approach to this um and bringing a character back in and and different for Star Trek. Um, you know, usually we only see this kind of um spiritual or metaphysical sense of the world or the universe in deep space nine um yeah yeah and uh with what uh, everything that we saw with cisco um yeah. you know it it really made you to believe okay spirituality uh metaphysical existence has a place in star trek mm -hmm. um, and, and so you take that with the return of janeway um the, the omega continuum the q continuum um you know having two kind of uh, people that have, you know, there seems to be some kind of destiny. And tell me about that idea of of bringing those kind of things together and bringing Janeway back. And and why did you go that way? Well, you know, it, in some ways, it's a very practical thing. Okay, I, I I sort of begin with the given circumstances, which is so I have this disembodied Janeway in something called the Q continuum. What is that? How does that work? Um, and what is that like? And, you know, and, and so the choices that you're talking about really tend to come as I'm working um, in, in the actual manuscript, writing moment by moment, scene by scene, thought by thought, how these characters are, are going to react to whatever situation they're in. Um, you know, I had, it took me a while in developing this story to come to grips with the reality that by making Omega what it was, I was also going to be defining the Q continuum in a new way. Right. And um, that, to me, was like the biggest leap to take as a writer. That was the scariest territory to be in because that's big stuff, you know, um, in terms of the entire Star Trek universe. And it's not to say that mine is now the final word on this and somebody might not come back later and contradict it because most surely they will. This is, this is very rich storytelling ground, so people are going to want to use it for all it's worth. But... Um, but sort of once I, once I realized I was there, it became clear to me that I had to find ways to 
sort of uniquely define these different realms and these different states of being for people. So, like, I made the very conscious choice to have everything that happens in the Q continuum and everything that happens in the Omega continuum be pure dialogue. Um, And because it's essentially pure thought. There's nothing to see when you're there. There's nothing to describe. There is no sense of he said, she said, that kind of back and forth. It's when you start to throw in descriptions and, and, and things like that, it it, um, it just takes it to a, a level of concreteness that I don't want in those places, you know? But yeah. I also knew that that was going to be a challenge for the readers because obviously it's like, well, who the hell's talking now? So, <laughs> so you, you know, it, it, was a, it was a sort of painstaking effort to make sure line by line that I was giving enough uh, distinctive character voice to each line so that people could tell what I was doing. And there was actually a point in the editorial process where, um, not in the Q scenes, but in the Omega scenes, where I had Etoc and and um, and everybody talking back and forth, uh-huh. where the editor went back and inserted the names of the characters and said, you know, he said, she said, Waverly said, right. whatever, you know, blah 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 blah. And um, the good news was they got all of them right the first time. So I wow. knew I had done my job, but then I had to go back and say, no, can we please take all of that out again because I really want that to be what it is and you know right. they, they they went there with me which was nice um but uh but as far as Janeway specifically and tying you know her resurrection to the more spiritual aspects of it I, I think that just became a matter for me of all she was at that point was spirit whatever that right. is or soul whatever that is I mean I don't pretend to have any idea what those things are. And I don't certainly don't want to limit them in any way for any of the readers. I expect whatever the reader's own personal sense of those things is to inform their reading experience. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, you know, I place myself in Catherine Janeway's head at that moment, and I'm like, well, how do, I, how do I define this for myself, and how do I go from here? So I spent a lot of time in her head um, trying to answer those questions for myself. And I find as a writer, if I'm happy with the answers, then typically the readers are too. So, you know, it it became her grasping with something she has never experienced before. And Mm. the closest thing that that I felt she could bring to it, the closest experience was that that moment that she had in the Sacred Ground episode where, you know, she had actually begun to believe for a tenth of a second that there might be miracles out there. And, you know, there was no rational explanation for how she saved Kess's life. You know, and then there was. But, but... For me, like I have never forgotten that scene where mm-hmm. she sits in sick bay and the doctor is telling his story and he's all happy and she just has this look on her face like someone has died, because something has in her yeah. a new idea, a new frame of reference or reality has now been shut off, and there was a sadness in that. So, for me, it just it it came completely organically from this idea of well, I'd sort of opened this door once and now. This is sort of all I have. So how do I operate? Um, and and I think like anyone in that situation, there's some stuff you're going to know for sure, and there's other places where you're going to have to take a leap, you know. And so for her, choosing to come back, and ultimately it, it was really really important to me that it be her choice, for a lot of reasons. But but um, you know, primarily I didn't want anything outside of the universe to be responsible for this, right? Right. I didn't want Q to snap his fingers and bring her back. Um, I didn't want, you know, to somehow reverse time and 
make all the Borg stuff not have happened. I wanted there to be some real way that we could justify um, her making this choice and this actually being allowed to happen. Now, I'm aided by the fact that we have Q, who's essentially omnipotent, and then we have Cass, who is also an extremely powerful being, to help her along the way. But, um, but at the end of the day, the most important thing for me was simply that it be her choice and that she actually do the deed. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. Yeah. Well, in, in the same way, um, you know, uh, when Harry is standing at King's Cross Station in his, you know, wherever he is. Right. And he has the choice to go on mm-hmm. or to go, you know, to return to this earth. And he makes the choice, you know, it, it's his choice. It's it's nobody else's. And so, yep. um, yeah, that's I think that that's really powerful. Um, well, in with... some ways, I think I think it's based on some sense that people have a, who, you know, there are a certain number of people who have said they have come back from the dead. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and I don't know what those experiences were, and I don't know how they happened physio- physically in the real world. But I don't I don't I don't know what any of it means. I just know that there's this recurring theme, you know, floating around out there that sometimes people get close to death and they choose to come back. Yeah, and that worked for me in this instance. Mm. What uh, you know, being inside Janeway's head, what do you think? Just the impact of uh this kind of experience will have on you know the scientist Janeway moving forward well i think like any experience worth writing about it breaks her open in a way so it just gives her a new facet of existence to be conscious of and connected to and where appropriate to explore but i don't think it's going to begin to define her in a way that um, will will make her unrecognizable to readers. Right. Saying? Right. Um, I think it's something that you sort of file away um, as now part of the complex tapestry that is this entire character, and you now have that to draw from where you didn't necessarily have it before. Yeah. You know, but you also have to, you know, you also have to know that as you're going to continue the story forward you're going to have to deal with that do you know what i'm saying you can't yeah. just pretend it never happened because while that might be true to what the series used to do that's <laughs> not what we're doing now do you know what i'm saying so yes, yes. uh I, I, it, I it's not going to disappear but i also don't think it's going to um be i don't think it's going to define her going forward i, I think there's a lot of other stuff going on with her that is very practical and real world and how do I get from you know this moment to the next right um, you know because this is not a um, this is not an easy situation we're in right you know no. we're not safe at home sort of sitting around thinking about all this stuff we're in the middle of the Delta Quadrant and bad stuff happens there so we kind of all have to do our jobs at the same time yeah and, and, and I mean she's just been kind of plopped down in in that again in a place where she would not have had Voyager be if right. she had been you know she would not have allowed full circle to happen I mean it would have been over right. her dead body um, and of course you know the universe made sure that it was over her dead body because <laughs> it, it needed her to be there the um, like, okay well if you insist <laughs> exactly um, because you don't understand we're going to need you to be there to talk 
Jr. into doing what he needs to do later on. You'll understand it when you get there, um, but you're going to have to die for a while. So. Yeah, well, and I think it wasn't. I think it wasn't even that she was necessary to talk. I mean, Junior came to that place on his own. He knew what he was going to have to do. Yeah. At at you know by two thirds of the way through the story, once he got to to see the prism and he got to see how it all worked out, um, he understood what his fate was going to be there or his the choices before him. And I, you know, I think it just speaks well of him that he made the hard choice. Um. But, you know, I really think that Janeway needed to be there much more so for the sake of Q and his yeah. wife to a degree. Yes. Um, because getting two omnipotent beings to accept the loss of their child, who they clearly adore, um, was really the harder road there. You know, and she was the only person, she was uniquely qualified to make that case to them that they had to let him go. Yeah, yeah. And as, as, you know, Junior says, um, when he he takes away Meryl's gift of being a messiah, you know, being a messiah isn't all it's cracked up to be. Yeah. Um, and I've just spared her that, unless you object. Mm. Uh, you know, so I, I love I love that, that he kind of realizes what his, what his choices are before him and that he's going to make the choice to be, quote unquote, a messiah. Yeah. Well, and I really wanted to, had I, if I, if I, didn't think it would have dragged the story down. I sort of wanted to see him exploring a little bit more with Echeb before he finally got to that point. The sad yeah. reality was there wasn't time. But I felt like I, I, I could have seen him doing, doing a few more things to just sort of set places in the universe to right, at least as best he could do at that point right. in time before moving on. But as it sort of all worked out, that was the only thing he had time for. Well, and I and I loved that because um, you, to me it felt like it showed the impact that Janeway had had on Junior, the very little that she knew him. Um, yeah, that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, because, you know, he, he starts off that episode of being just this little brat, and yeah, by like, the end, and by this book, he is a completely um, unique cue. Um, one that we haven't seen before um, and yeah. I really liked his characterization and, and again you know just as I was with Amanda I was really sad to lose Junior um, yeah. because he had become something and I was like man this would you, you really can't keep him around um, but I'll, I'll be sad that he won't be able to come back yeah yeah me too I mean I it it it, it, it isn't fun closing doors like that but it in this in this case particularly, it was so necessary to the story because there is no other resolution to be had. You know, right. have to, you have to reestablish that balance. And if you're going to destroy Eden, you have to destroy the, the county yeah. house at the same time. It's just not. And it's funny, too, because I've read a lot of people saying, well, I'm sure they're not really dead. I'm sure they're coming back. I'm sure they're just going to <laughs> mega continue. And I'm like, did you read the book? Because we were pretty clear that yeah, when you go into Omega, if you add to its power, that's it. Yeah. And so I don't, they've closed yeah, all those doors. There's no coming back. Yeah, no, there isn't, and and I'm okay with that. You know, I just it's and you know the other thing that's funny about it is that from the first moment I read before Dishonor, and I read it, you know, way back before it came out in its galley forms as I was working right. through, you know, beginning full circle for the what felt like the tenth time, and you know, working in all the Destiny material and stuff. Um, my instinct from that moment was, this isn't about Q the Dot. It's about Junior. You know, right. I couldn't conceive of a reason why Q Senior would have spared Janeway's life. I just right. couldn't. I mean, it just didn't. 
it seemed so beyond, you know, no matter what his, his uh, feelings for her might have been, his you know, this is a guy who's lived for friggin' ever. He's watched, you know, countless billions of people die on his watch. This is not, you know, it just didn't make any sense to me. But it, it made complete emotional sense to me that Junior would have a hard time with it. And, you know, so as I was, as I was beginning to work that, that whole story notion out in my head, it was, mm. for me, always about the relationship between Junior and, and Janeway. Last uh, question on, on um, Eternal Tide I wanted to ask you about is, is you know, I'd kind of seen people um, say that they thought that Eden had been wasted. And, yeah. Uh, which I don't agree with. But tell me just a little bit about um, creating her and um, some of the things that, uh, you know, what kind of brought you um, to the position that you got to in Eternal Tide to be like, okay, this is Omega's child and, and this is how this is going to work. Well, okay, the first thing I'll say is that when I initially developed Eden and was thinking about the places her story could go, um, it was not my intention to, to, do, to tell the exact story that I told in the Eternal Tide. It wasn't until I was sort of asked to um, connect that to the queue and that whole bigger picture that her story, as we told it, came into the full focus. I mean, the reality is there's 50 different ways I could have told Eden's story. Um, the beginning of her character, though, had a lot to do with Chakotay's character in that I needed him to not be captain for a while, which meant right. Voyager was going to need another captain. And who was this person going to be? And um, and I just really liked the idea that this was someone who was looking for home because, mm. for me, that was so thematically resonant with what Voyager had been doing all this time, right? Voyager, the series, was all about let's go home. So now I, in creating Eden, I gave us a way to continue to explore that a little bit. Um, and just, you know, practically speaking, I had uh, the person that I needed who was going to be able to work off of Chakotay to sort of um, continue to bring him to the places that he needed to go. Um, so, and then just, you know, Eden and Batiste early on, you know, I just, loved the idea that, th that these two people who hated each other were going to be <laughs> working together because that's just always fun. It was great. You know, um, so, and that, and that gave me interesting ways to develop her character pretty quickly as well as his, you know. I like the idea that as much as Starfleet is one big happy family, it's also composed of individuals who have, you know, competing agendas and, and, and challenges between one another. I, anytime I can find to bring characters into conflict um, for what seems like real, truthful, organic reasons, you can bet I'm going to do it because it's just, you know, much more fun that way. Yeah. <laughs> There's no story if everybody's getting along, you know what I'm saying? Uh, exactly. That's that's why I love Deep Space Nine. I, I'm, I'm glad that you do that with Voyager as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's that, that show. I didn't watch Deep Space Nine in its entirety until I started working with Heather and she was working on her first Deep Space Nine book, and I thought, well, if I'm going to have anything meaningful to add to this conversation, <laughs> I better sit down and, and actually watch this thing. And it very quickly became, I think, one of my favorite Trek series yeah. of all time, just because of the fabulous ways that they worked with those characters and the depth that they went to. I mean, that was, that was an extraordinary piece of storytelling. And I, I absolutely love it. Although I don't feel in any way qualified to write it, but I just I love it. 
it is a it is a very good show um and my personal favorite so yeah um well um Kirsten, I know that you um, have uh, just generously given us your time, and so I don't want to take up too much more, although I could really talk to you for hours on this. Um, <laughs> and it's, well, it, do you I, have I, any I, other specific questions? I mean, is there anything that... Um, you know, I, I was just wondering, and, and as a fan of, the, of your series and the books, there's some threads that you've kind of uh, left undone. Um, and are those uh, some things that we are going to be getting into in the next few books as you as you continue with the Voyager novels? If everything goes as I have planned and as I am currently discussing and working on with the editors, then yes. Awesome. Awesome. Because um, I look forward to seeing what's going on with Megan McDonald. Um, so, well, bear uh, in mind, too. I mean, there's a lot of people who are like, well, I want that story told. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's been like real world time, like 10 minutes since she left the ship. She's going to need time to, yeah. to, yeah. to do what she's going to do. So <laughs> For us, know, it seems like ages. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's great, though. I, I'm, I'm very excited that um, those are things that you are obviously thinking about and, and um, will want to do in the next few books. Um, yeah, I don't, what... I, don't, I don't ever set something up with the intention of not paying it off. But I do set things up very, very conscious of the fact that other writers could come in at any point Right. And take it anywhere they want to, yeah, much as I did good. with Christy's stuff. So yeah. I'm sure she had big plans for, you know, all the stuff that she had begun to lay out in in her four books. And, uh, you know, I tried to, as best I could, I tried to intuit where she was going in some of those cases and try to follow them. And in other cases, I just sort of had to, you know, shift things around because I needed, right. I needed new stuff. So that's good. Well, uh, one of the things that I I do like to ask the authors, and I think it's interesting, is um, what are the things that um, you enjoy reading that, you know, don't necessarily have anything to do with Star Trek um, when you get a chance to just kind of pick up a book at the bookstore? Yeah, I read so much stuff. Is it the, for, for a long time, apart from lots of just sort of, you know, liter, there's literary fiction stuff that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always been my what I call my airplane books, which are like sort of cheap thrillers that you you know, pick up and can read in a couple of hours. Um, But then there's also, uh, I I went through a period before I started doing a lot of Trek writing where I got very deep into historical fiction stuff. Uh, Sharon K. Pemmon in particular is one of my absolute all-time favorites. Um, And then something happened kind of shortly after that when I started writing that most of the reading that I do now is basically sort of contemporary nonfiction stuff. Um, Okay. sort of deepening my knowledge of what's going on in the world around us because it is so frightening and horrifying to me most of the time. <laughs> so yeah. as much information as I can get my hands on, that's what I, that's what I tend to read these days. I, it's been a while since I was able to read just a flat-out novel right. um, just for fun. Although I did pick up Casual Vacancy, uh, Rowling's new book, right when it came out. I haven't gotten to read it yet, and I have 15 oh. things that I have to read before I get to it, but... Um, I did. Uh, I did read that. I. I actually. Um, and I reviewed it on my own site, and I really enjoyed it. It's. It's dark and gritty and very different. But uh, I think um, to me it was Ian McEwen meets uh, Jane Austen, which is a very strange pairing. But mm-hmm. um, it, it works really well. In fact, I just picked up Ian's new book today, and I was reading oh. it. Um, so, um, yeah. When I'm not trying to review Trek books. Um, I, I'll, I'm like you. I'll pick up pretty much anything from nonfiction to fiction. 
as long as it looks yeah. good. So, well, the last thing uh, I'd like to ask you before we let you go is, um, is there anything that you are working on um, that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, and then two, where can our listeners get the latest updates on your work or follow you and those kind of things? Yeah, so the, the, the focus of my work right now is the next Voyager novel, um, which uh, pretty much picks up right where Eternal Tide left off, and we're continuing forward from there. I can't talk much about um, the, the, the new story or how far we're going with it because I don't know yet. I know what I want to do, and I'm still working out with um, uh, Pocket how that's all going to happen. So, but for sure, we have one new book that will be coming out in early 2014 that continues the Voyager story. So there's that. And then always I have um, in the background another uh, book that I've been trying to write for about uh, four years now that my agent uh, got me started on after I wrote my Buffy the Vampire Slayer book. Um, so it's, it would be my first original novel, and it is sort of cut from a similar cloth uh, as Buffy in that it's a whole other universe um, uh, and mythology about humans and immortals and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, But the sad thing is, at, as soon as I get into it a little bit, I keep getting a new Voyager book to write, so I haven't been able to um, get as far on that as I would like. Um, but this time around, I'm really going to try to work as fast as I can through Voyager so that I can get back to it before I have to pick up Voyager again, um, because it really needs to be finished. So... <laughs> We will see how that goes. Um, so there's that. And as far as um, people finding me to ask questions or getting in touch with me, um, this is a place where I really do suck because I, um, <laughs> I just don't have I don't have a web page. I don't tweet. I'm not on Facebook. I don't do any of that stuff, largely because I don't have the time. Um, yeah. Ever since my ever since my daughter was born, I have about three or four hours on any given evening to do yeah. all of the day's work that I have to do. And so, if I spend too much time uh, doing this sort of self promotion stuff that I know is really important and a good thing to do, uh, I don't get the writing done. And so, for mm. me, it's kind of I, I have to make a choice right now as to what I'm doing. But that said, uh, I do I do check in uh, fairly regularly with Track PBS. So um, anybody who's a member there or has specific questions that they want to ask me can always come there. And as I see them, I'm happy to answer them. So that's sort of that. Well, yeah, that's great. And, and uh, I really appreciated that too. I mean, I, I love it when the authors come on and, and help us understand some of their thought processes. And, uh, and, and I really appreciate you doing that as well. And, and we had some good conversations there. And so really enjoyed getting to talk to you because not only are you um, great at writing these books, but you really do know these characters and have an insight on Voyager that um, I, I think is really um, extensive. Um, and it really helps you get these characters. And um, as a reader and, and a fan, I've really appreciated your novels um, for Voyager and helping them give me a great appreciation for the series that I didn't necessarily have and helping me love characters that I didn't love before like Chakotay. And, um, mm -hmm. and so I just really appreciate that. And I appreciate you taking out your time for us. And, you know, anytime you want to come back and we'll hopefully have you back when, um, your newest book comes out for Voyager and get to talk through some of that as well. That'd be great. I'd really enjoy it. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much, Kirsten. I appreciate you taking the limited time you have in the evening to talk to us. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're welcome.
Well, Matthew, that was really interesting to talk to Kirsten for so long about the new directions of Voyager. It was. I loved talking to her. In fact, uh, I, I can't wait uh, for her next Voyager book, and I can't wait to get to talk to her again about it. Um, I mean, she, I think she probably knows more about Voyager than just about anybody out there. And so, um, yeah, fascinating discussion. Yeah, I, I feel like she does too. That Definitely. All right. Well, let's tell everyone where they can contact us if they'd like to uh, share their thoughts on the show today or anything about Voyager or Kirsten's books. You can just go to trek.fm slash contact. And there's a form on that page. Just choose to send to a show, choose Literary Treks, and that will come to Matthew and myself. And uh, of course, you can find us on Twitter through the Trek FM account, username Trek FM, on Facebook, facebook.com slash Trek FM as well. And Matthew, where can everyone find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on the Twitter at uh, MattRushing02, uh, talking about all sorts of things. Um, and of course, um, the book reviewer here on Trek FM. And so you can find my book reviews there. Um, also, um, you know, so feel free to leave a comment on those. Um, just finishing up David Mack's newest book, uh, Silent Weapons. So that'll be coming out soon. Um, also, just wanted to say thank you to the listeners who have reviewed us on iTunes. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yes, we've had a great response to the first show. And um, hopefully, maybe next show we'll be able to read a few of those reviews. And, yeah, that would be great. And show our appreciation for that, for sure. All right. Well, everyone, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C. Brian Jones. That's Brian with a Y. And you'll find me on Trek FM. At, on the ready room as well as various other shows and and doing this and that so um please drop by say hello and um we appreciate you listening and uh, don't forget to tune in next week when we're going to be talking to keith DeCandido. so i'm very excited about that yes yeah, should be a great show you call that light reading to each his own number one